Brand new series kicking off today, going through the book of Ephesians. We had an incredible Easter last week, and then just before that, we had gone through the book of Galatians. We're calling this series Seize the Moment. Can I tell you, uh, just so that you have some, 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 some clarity here, uh, when we get the letters in the New Testament, and they seem to be speaking to the church and calling the church out, saying, hey, you know what, you need to, be, you need to refocus and realign this way. Those are not, like, not necessarily hard rebukes. They're meant to awaken us to the understanding that as the church, right, we're not going to get it right on our own. And so we need something, and that's the Word and the Spirit of God at work in and through us to keep bringing us into this place of looking like the church that God called us to be. And so as we're diving into the book of Ephesians, it is really about refining who we are so that we can seize every moment in life, right? How many times have you had an opportunity, right, that's just been right there in front of you to share the gospel, and, and, and one of the first things you think about is, I'm not worthy, or I have this sin, or I'm messed up, or I don't know what to say. And because of all of those things that, that, that attack our identity, we end up missing those moments when the light of eternity could be shining so brightly into somebody's home. And I just want you to think about this. Like, think about the, 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 uh, the domino effect that takes place when, when somebody comes to know the Lord and they take that light into their home, right? Right, when, the, when, their, when their family gets to know the Lord and His goodness and His mercy, like that moment that you were light, it can have just lasting and lasting effects for generations to come. And so what we want to do is be in the Word, be stewards of the Word, so that we are being refined. And Paul is writing for us, uh, or writing to the church at Ephesus. This is, again, for our benefit, but it is a response to how this church is, is kind of known within the region. And I'll also say this, th these letters that are written were not all stacked up in like a, a six-month period. So when we're going through and we're going, oh man, Paul wrote this letter and this letter and this letter, it's not like he just had a creative day where he, he woke up and was like, I got to write a bunch of letters today and just pin them all out. But these happened over years and years. They were responses to the fruit of those churches, right? And so those, those churches would be established, and they would be ministering and doing life in their community. Word would come back to Paul about some of the things that were being taught and said, some of the experiences that were being had, and then he would, he would just be praying. And the, and the Scripture tells us that led by the Holy Spirit, he would write out these letters, and then they would get, make their way to those churches, and those churches received them Right? And that is why they were protected because these churches made changes. They, they, they changed the way that they were living and doing life. And so now we have the benefit of that all these years later. So uh, today we're going to call today's message Know Your Identity. This is the first thing that Paul's going to do is he's going to address identity. H how many of you know identity is kind of a hot topic in our society today, right? Uh, uh, who you are, right? And, and Paul says that you need to know who you are, not based on the world, but he's going to lay out an argument that you should find your identity through Christ. And so, uh, know who you are. This is so important for you as a believer. And let me tell you, 
It is so important in, in trying to identify or figure out what your identity is that you do not turn to the world to give you the answers for who God has created you to be. Because, because there is a God, there is an enemy that is at work, and that enemy's goal is to create deception. So first thing that you've got to know if you're going to know your identity is how are you saved? Now, Paul would argue that this has already been established. Remember when he wrote to the church in the region of Galatia, he tells them, I've already established salvation for you. There's nothing to be added to it. And so as a baseline, writing here to the church at Ephesus, he would, he would have already established within them that you are saved by grace, unmerited, undeserving. You didn't do anything. You didn't wake up today and impress God and God go, man, I really like the way they made avocado toast. I'm going to save them, right? God's not impressed. He's not impressed by your virtue signal that you threw out on Facebook, Instagram, your TikTok where you made everybody feel good about this. None of those things made God go, I got to save this person, right? Unmerited, undeserving. You did nothing. God just wanted you. So you've got to know how you are saved. The next thing here, how, uh, who are you accountable for, to? Who is it that you are accountable to? Are you accountable to the people that are in your life? Are you accountable to the world around you? Or is your greatest accountability the one that is to God? This is the complication right now in our, in our society is that there are a number of external forces that seem to be uh, creating a level of accountability that are causing people who are of faith to feel like that maybe they are not honoring God. And so this is something that will at times create some tension in your life, right? This is exactly this accountability question of the, or this accountability portion of identity is exactly why 10 of the 12 apostles died bloody, gruesome deaths. Because they refused to comply to the external world and be accountable to the world, they said, I will be accountable to the King of Kings. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. They said, we saw him firsthand. We experienced him and we're willing to die. It doesn't matter how you do it. Peter historically says, hey, crucify me upside down. Don't even crucify me the way that you crucified Jesus. Why? Because they knew who they were accountable to. So as we dive into this, Paul is going to make this assumption that he makes here, that he'll argue in other writings, but he's making the assumption here that you already know how you were saved and who you're accountable to. Now the question is, what is your claim, right? What is yours to claim? What is it that, in my identity, I go, this is mine. Because I'm saved, because I'm committed to him, this is what it's about. So this is where we're going to start right here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is a standard format greeting. Nothing that's different for the time. He begins with this standard format. Let's check it out real quick. First thing he does is he gives his name, right? Paul. He says, I'm the one that's writing. And then he gives his credentials, right? What are his credentials? An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Note, note what he does not really dive into. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle by vote. 
It wasn't like we got all the people together and we said, who among us is going to be the apostle? And then we picked team captains and then they began to pick teams, right? Anybody have like flashbacks to the playground as a kid right there? Like that's terrifying for me. I was never picked first. But he said, it's not by vote, right? It's not by academia, right? I mean, Paul had an incredible education. He went to the best of the best schools. He doesn't walk around saying that that actually has anything to do with his calling. And it's not by employment. I got hired to come over here, so obviously I'm an apostle. No, that's not what he says. He says he is an apostle by calling. So in order for him to be able to say that, he has to know his own identity in Christ. So in order for you to walk in your calling, you're going to have to figure out who you are in Christ. And when you figure out who you are in Christ, then you can begin to receive the calling that is on your life. And then he goes to the recipient. Who is the recipient? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So what are saints? Saints uh, are believers set apart for God. Now, I know that like we kind of think about saints and we think about like even like the way that the Catholic Church kind of proposes this, that you have to be dead to be a saint. So if we were to look at this in that context, Paul would be writing to a bunch of dead people. That's not what he's doing. He's writing to a group of people who are believers, right? So and so it's not just that they are the saints who are in Ephesus. They're not just believers. He says, there are believers among you. I am writing to the believe, those who are believers and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And, and I think we get this. Like we meet people all the time who would go, yeah, I'm a believer. And I'm not here to judge or cast doubt on their salvation today. I mean, that is, thankfully, that is not my job, right? That's God's responsibility right? But he says, I'm writing to those of you who are believers and are faithful, because if you're faithful, you're going to receive this thing that I'm about to present to you. And if you're not faithful and you're just kind of in this uncomfortable place of trying to, yeah, I'm a believer, but I've also got to make my, my, my people happy over here, you're not going to receive this anyway. So he's laying out this, this beginning, this intro. He says, this is who it is for. And then he says here, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this? He says to the group of people that I'm speaking to, grace to you. What? He gives them a blessing. Now, when, when, you, when we travel and we have the opportunity to go into other countries and do missions work, I, I'm going to tell you, the church, the church resonates this in other parts of the world. Right? You'll walk into to churches in Kenya or Mexico, and one of the things that the pastors and the people in the church are doing, they're constantly going, blessings on you, blessings to you, grace be upon you. This is common language. In America, right, we don't talk like that. In our churches, we don't talk in this sense of like, hey, man, God's blessing be upon you. May, may God increase you. May God find favor on you. Like, we just don't use that kind of language. And here's my challenge for you as we dive into this series, right, and seize the moment. What might it look like? Why don't you try blessing some people? Why don't you try just out loud telling some people, hey, you know what? I'm going to pray God blesses you. I'm going I'm to pray that God brings the answer. I'm gonna, man, may the Lord bring favor on your life, Right? And can I tell you something about favor? My buddy who's a missionary in Mexico, he says, we were standing in the line, to, the passport line at the airport in New York. I don't know if you've ever had to do that before, but that is a terrible line to stand in, right? I mean, it moves so incredibly slow. And this person walks up to him, this official, and uh, is looking at passports and gets his and looks at it and says, you know what, sir, why don't you go ahead and go to the uh, pre-approved line? 
and they pull him out of all this. Leave his son, too, with me, right? So it's me, my son, and his son. We all get to stay, and he gets to go and walk right through and go get a snack and sit down and take a nap while we wait in line for two hours. We get to the other side, and I'm like, how did that happen? And he says, favorite and fair, boys, favorite and fair, right? Right? And obviously that's silly, but the truth is when you've got the favor of God in your life, right, there's nothing that's fair about that, right? There's nothing that's fair. It's God's favor. It's God's decision. You should want the favor of God on your life, and you should want it for the people around you. So I would say, hey, through this series, what if we tried to develop some language where we were just like, you know what? I'm going to do that. Blessings be upon you, brother. Blessings be upon you, sister. And it might feel kind of weird because it's not very American, right? But it's very Jesus, right? So maybe we could be more like Jesus. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now I'm going to go ahead and, and, and kind of give you the parameters of where we're going to be today. Verses 3 through 14 are one continuous run-on sentence. I know in your text there are commas and periods and all of those beautiful things. That's the translators trying to make it easier for you to read. But Paul, I think, probably talked a lot like I do at 100 miles an hour and crammed it all in. So this is one continuous sentence. So this is where we're going to focus through verse 14 today. So what does he say here, beginning in this beautiful run-on sentence? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So publicly, you don't just have to bless the people around you, but you can publicly bless God as well, right? Blessings be upon the Lord, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So uh, just to help you understand every, it means the whole, right? So every means every. So when he says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, that means that if you are the saints who are faithful, right, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. But, but what is a spiritual blessing? Let's, let's take a moment to look at this. So in the, in the Greek, this means non-carnal, right, breathed by God. So these are things, these are blessings that man cannot originate, that man cannot compile. These are blessings that only God can breathe, can bring. And he does it how? Breathed by God. Now, this is going to hopefully make a little bit more sense in just a moment. Let's go back to Jeremiah. We went through Jeremiah last year. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming. Now, just as a reminder, Jeremiah is a prophet during the time when Daniel is taken into captivity, right? Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Daniel becomes the leader of the Magi, right? A lot of Scholars believe that it's his influence as the leader of the Magi that is the reason why the Magi, the wise men, showed up when Jesus was born, right? Because they knew the signs to look for, because a man of God had turned the magicians into God followers, Christ pursuers. Pretty powerful thing. And simultaneously, Jeremiah is in Israel while Daniel is in Babylon, and he is prophesying. And here in chapter 31, verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So there is a current covenant that is in place. We refer to it as the old covenant. And here, Jeremiah Long before Jesus comes on the scene and establishes the new covenant, covenant, he is prophesying that there is going to be a new covenant. Can, can I just tell you something? Like if you're somebody who is wrestling with the identity of God, like could God be real? Is God real? Man, I, I would encourage you, if you're an analytical person, just pause for a moment in your belief or disbelief, 
right? And if you really want to know the truth, take and do a subjective study of the integrity of the Bible. It will blow your mind how these scriptures are universally, academically agreed to have been written a thousand years before they were fulfilled, right? And the intricacy, it's not like it was like one or two like things that Jesus and these disciples came out and did. It was over and over dozens and dozens of prophecies that were fulfilled, and the, 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 the level of protection over the text that we have today is unlike any other ancient text that we have. In fact, it, it's so crazy. Uh, the academic community refuses to use the same standard, right, that they will use for um, uh, oh, man, my mind just went blank. What's the name of the ancient Iliad? You know, the story of the Iliad, Homer's uh, book, right? They'll use one standard to authenticate him. They won't use that standard to authenticate the Bible. They refuse to because if they use that same standard, it has like a 99.9% uh, range of not changing over the same period of time where the Iliad has like a 40% rate of change, right? So, so I'm just saying, like, like the, the Holy Bible is a mind-blowing book to have been protected so well to the point where we're at today. I would argue that when we look at that uh, in the context of all the other books we've got, man, it lays a really strong case to the fact that God is at work preserving His Word. Why? Because His Word is eternal. I'm going to get onto a tangent here. So he says here, he's prophesying, and he says there's going to be a new covenant, right? Verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So the old covenant was a physical covenant, right? And this is how it worked. It says, he, he said, if you keep your part, you receive what you need right? So you do these things and you get these things. This was the covenant that Israel was under. And then we enter into a new covenant, which was prophesied. And under the new covenant, it's a spiritual covenant. It's not a physical covenant. And so even if you don't live up to your part, you have the right to go and ask now, right? Because the blood has been shed. It's no longer, con your, your access to God is no longer contingent on your righteousness, Right? I mean, they had to go through all these purification uh, rituals to be able to come into the, to the presence of God, to be able to be in His presence. Now, the Scripture says that because that blood was poured out and the final sacrifice was made under the new covenant, that we all have the right to go to the Father. Healing is a really interesting uh, uh, one to look at, okay? And hopefully I don't upset anybody here. Uh, uh, you will see that in the old covenant, okay, that if you kept God's commands, there was this language that said, if you keep my commands, I will protect you from sickness, right? There were times when there was disease, when people were dying, God would say, do this, and if you do this, you'll be, you'll be saved, you won't get sick, right? Okay, so the new covenant, though, doesn't have any of that. And a lot of times I think the church does an injustice because we kind of are, are like, oh, there's this like promise for healing, right? What the promise is, is that you have access to the Father to go and make your request known, right? And, and so under the new covenant, it says that he hears our prayers and petitions and is working on our behalf, okay? So versus this, this idea, and, and, and listen, let me tell you something. What you cannot tell me is that God doesn't heal, you can't convince me of that because I have seen it with my own eyes. I have seen body appendage grow, right? And you're like, no, I don't believe you. You don't have to believe me. I'm telling you, you just aren't going to convince me because I've seen it, right? 
I have seen the miraculous happen in my life. So you're not going to convince me that it doesn't happen. But I'm also going to tell you that you're not going to find a bunch of Scripture in there that tells you that, like, there's this huge promise that no matter what, there's going to be healing. What there is is that you have access to the throne room of God. And by having access to the throne room of God, you have the access to go and petition, make your petition known, and God is faithful to hear you out. And this is why we use this language of relationship all of the time when we talk about being. I'll get to that in a moment. So, uh, so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First Peter, what does he say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we are in a new covenant with a living God. He is not dead. He is alive. So who am I? This becomes kind of the, 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 the question at hand, all right? And I'm going to lay out a few points, so if you're taking notes, you can jump on these uh, in just a moment. I am born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he goes on here, Peter does, in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So what is the inheritance? The thing that you have, it is a spiritual covenant, right? The promises and the hopes, they are things that transcend this physical life. They go beyond the hype of today. They are in eternity. Now, go back to Ephesians here. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. What does it say here? It says, as he chose. And what does that mean? It simply means that he selected, right? So who am I? I am chosen. In your identity, how am I saved? Who am I serving? Now, what do I claim? I claim that he picked me. So you want to ask me who I am? I was handpicked by God. As are every single one of you that surrender your life to Him. Verse 5. So that's the first one. We're going to come to some more. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, Predestined. This is a word that has caused a lot of stress within the church, okay? So, uh, part of my responsibility is to, to teach the word, right? And so, we use this language open-handed, closed-handed. Closed-handed, those are things that we really are not open for debate. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the empty tomb, closed-handed. When, when we are talking about things like predestination, they're open-handed. I'm going to share with you what my understanding is. You are more than welcome to walk out of here and disagree and us walk in harmony and be brothers and sisters in Christ. Hopefully what I share, though, might make a little bit of sense here. So we see this word predestined, and this gets some people hung up, right? And it creates these major factions within the church. Um, I want you to look at this. When we, when we look at this in the Greek, it is simply this, to mark beforehand, to foreordain. Now, we, we, we heap a lot of extra content into that, 
okay? We, and this is, this is a thing that we do uh, in humanity. We love to take words and continue to use them in, in different ways until they take on new definitions. And, and this is one of the things I'll, I'll, I'll say I, that, that I would warn you about when we talk about predestination, right? We put a lot of like absolute static energy into this thing, right, that just cannot be changed. But when they're writing this, that's not how they understood the word, right? So it had the characteristics of being marked beforehand to be foreordained. So what we know about God is that he has an immutable character. Now, this is one of the things that we talk about when we get that question we always get, well, how can a loving God allow bad things to happen? So God has an immutable character. That means that his character is not something that he'll ever compromise. Okay, so the, the, the kind of the adage, and, and I've shared this before, but, you know, if, if your child is hurt and needs to get to the hospital, you're going to throw your child in the car and you're going to break all the speed limits and drive over medians to get your child to the hospital, right? You're going to break the law to do that because you love your child and because you want to get your child the help that's needed. And so the argument then gets made by some, well, why would God, not, why would God be any different, right? Well, here's the thing. God doesn't break laws. You see, we're bound by this, like, this limit here on earth that we have, and so the options that we have put us in the position where we would break the law, but God's not willing to break the law. And so if there is, if you need redemption, redemption comes through the blood sacrifice on the cross. We have a problem with dying. God doesn't have a problem with us being with him right? The world has fallen. There's a broken, sinful world around us. There is a nature among man that is destructive, right? And so there are certain things that God has set into motion, and God is not going to violate those things. He has an immutable character. One of the things that is not a part of that immutable character is time. Time is not one of the things that's immutable. God is not bound by time, right? God transcends time, and he makes this known for us to help us get some understanding of how it is that he does work, right? Now, when you go to Google and look up the word predestined, you get this definition, of God destined someone for a particular fate or purpose. Notice how we take this idea of predestined and we insert an individual into it, right? Now, the Greek language is really good about making sure that if it is dealing with a person or a subject, it, it, it does a good job at communicating that. The word predestined there in the Greek does not do that, right? So, this is what it comes down to, choice versus result. And these are the arguments, right, that we have. Are our choices predestined or are the results predestined? And these become the things that the church begins to argue around, right? And here's what I'm going to argue, is I'm going to argue that it is the result as a condition of the choice. And so there is a predestined result based on the choices that we make. And so those that are predestined, they are the ones, right, who, who gain the result of their choices. And so the, the, the benefit, the prize is predestined, if you will right? So when you go and you participate in some type of competition, right, and you know that if you win, you're going to get this, there is, there is a predestined decision on this, 
Now, now I'm going to keep tracking for a moment with me. Second Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So Peter says time is not, is not, he's not bound to that same law the way we are. There are parts that God has committed himself to. We will understand why in the fullness of eternity. But what we know is that time is not one of the things that he is bound to. Peter's making this argument right here, and watch what he does, jumping in the next verse. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how many does he want to perish? None, right? He would not that any perish, but that all would have everlasting life. And this is one of those things, again, within this argument of predestination that becomes really complicated because how can God predestine some for eternity and then obviously have to predestine some for hell and then you get partial predestination in there. That's a whole other argument to make, but right? So they'll, they'll come in and you make this argument, but then you have to reconcile the fact that Peter says that God would have none perish. But obviously if he's choosing some for hell, then he would have them go to hell. And so you end up with this, like, this complication. Look here in 1 John chapter 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours alone, but also for the sins of the whole world. So who did he die for? The whole world, for everybody, right? He wanted everybody to come and know him. So, so what was it that he was a propitiation for? He was a propitiation for those that would make the choice to serve him, those that would make the choice to make him Lord of their lives and therefore become a part of those that receive that which has been predestined, and that is an eternal life with him. So let's go back to Ephesians, and what are you predestined for? Adoption. Adoption. So let's take a look at adoption here. This is the placing as a son, not the placing of a son, but the placing as as a son. So I, I have personal experience with this. Uh, my, my biological mother, uh, she said deuces when I was a little baby and ran off and was pregnant with another man's baby and we didn't see her again, right? It's pretty, uh, pretty uh, uh, catastrophic to a household for those types of decisions to be made. But you know what God did was God brought my dad into a really healthy church and there my dad met my mom, uh, uh, we, you know, you may refer to her as stepmom, but when, I, when they first got married, she began the hard work of adopting me and my sister. And so uh, from that day, I, I, so when I talk about my mom, right, I'm not, uh, I am talking about this woman that became my mom. She is my mom, right? And so I was grafted into her life. And so when I reference my mom, this is the person I'm talking about, the person who made the decision to adopt me and make me her own. And, and for a long time in life, I always thought that she, her adopting me brought her into my life. I always thought, well, this gave her the opportunity to be my mom. But as I got older and, and really once I had children, what I realized was that I was grafted into her life. And I'm going to tell you, it's a subtle difference, but it changes a lot. When I can move from this position of entitlement to the position of, oh my gosh, I did not deserve for somebody to lay down some of their dreams, some of their hopes and their ambitions to make me their own. 
And this picture of adoption is something that's really powerful in Scripture. Adoption was not something that was taken lightly, and there was incredible accountability that was on the other side of it. When you were adopted, you were their child. Being adopted meant you were a son, you were a daughter. You were not a stepson, a stepdaughter, a half. It was nothing. You were now grafted in, and you were full. You were, you, the, the, whatever had to be done was done, and it was completely and fully paid for. And he says that you were predestined for what? Adoption. That when you were running away as a child of the enemy, living life in total rebellion, that there was always the intent that if you would turn around and receive what he has for you, you would be grafted into him and you would be his son. You would be his daughter. So who am I? I am chosen. I am adopted. I have a Father in heaven, and he calls me son, and I call him father. He is the king of kings. Now, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So what, what do we have redemption in? His blood. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, what does blood mean in the Greek? Blood, all right? So I don't have to get real fancy with you on this. Blood is blood, but blood had a really significant meaning, and that is blood is the evidence of life. There is nothing that is living that does not have this, and there is nothing that is not living that has blood. Blood is the evidence of life inside of Scripture, and this was the importance of the sacrifices that were being made because life was being spilt out as an atonement, what? Because death had entered the picture, right? And so something else was dying in the place of those who deserved death. And so blood being spilled out is the symbol of life emptied. And the blood here specifically that's being talked about is one that brings redemption. And so Jesus pouring out his blood for us on the cross, right, brought us redemption. We are redeemed we are no longer caught up in the possession of anyone or anything. Can I tell you this, that you can find freedom in your life through Christ, right? You can find freedom. There is redemption from your past, and there is a redeeming future for you in Him. So who am I? I am chosen. I am adopted. I am redeemed. And Paul is coming out of the gate with this. He's saying, listen, Man, you're a saved person. You need to start knowing what that means. You need to start knowing how to communicate that. You need to be able to tell people that, hey, I'm chosen, I'm adopted, I'm redeemed. Here in verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what does he say? He says, making known to us the mystery of his will. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Who's he making it known to? Those who are what? The saints who are faithful. And this is a trust exercise. It takes a tremendous amount of trust, right, to be able to open up the things that are most secret in your life and share them with somebody. 
Maybe you're in here and you have shared things with friends before just to have them run around and tell everybody to laugh at you, to not honor the integrity of the moment. It hurts. And there's this really beautiful thing that Paul says happens, right, in your relationship with God. When you are in pursuit of Him, what is He doing? He is literally opening up His heart and making known to you the mysteries that He possesses. So there's a tremendous amount of trust that is played out here. Let's look here in John chapter 15, what he says, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. What does he say? Paul says those who are saints and are faithful. What does that mean? That you're being obedient. What, is, what, is, what does it say here in, in John? He says, you are my friends. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Listen, there is, a, there is a trust in the relationship and God says, I am going to make things known to you because you are my friend. There is a relationship that is there, a relationship with God. If we go back to the Old Testament, we don't get a lot of this type of language. One that you might think about here is Moses, right? Moses was a friend of God, right? But this is, what, this is what's so crazy about the Old Covenant, is that we get this one in what, millions of people on the planet that are identified as a friend of God, but then when we come into the New Covenant, those who are believers and are faithful, you're a friend. You're immediately into the position that Moses was in where God will make known to you those things that are not understandable, beyond the realm of understanding. And so today, I am a friend of God, right? So, so this is what I'm going to tell you. The Bible holds more truth in its pages than every mind of the modern age combined. If you'll be in your word, you will be blown away when science backs up Scripture. And I'm going to pause real quick and be a critic uh, uh, and do my little critique on science, right? I believe in science, right? But I don't believe that somebody has the right to put in front of me the scientist that's saying the thing that needs to be said. I want actual people who are willing to be wrong when they're wrong, seeking truth to be the scientists that are the ones that are telling me the direction that I need to go, right? The things that I need to understand. I'm not looking for people who are emotional and they're beginning the scientific process and going, fact, I had an idea, I'm writing a paper, it's in the journal, believe it, and there's never been any tests that go around it. And you go, oh, they don't do that. They, that is 100% happening in our world right now. And there are real scientists, people who are dedicated little nerds, staying behind a computer monitor, running little vials. That's what they're doing. They're not being interviewed by People Magazine all the time. And they're speaking up going, hold on, this was never tried and tested. I believe in science, right? But I don't believe in scientists playing a part in a Hollywood film, all right? And I'm going to tell you what we find time and time again right, is that science backs up Scripture. I, I love this test that was done like 20 years ago maybe, and, uh, and, and I believe it was in Japan if I remember correctly, and scientists, um, they, they, 
they, they identified that there was an electric charge that was released when you speak, okay? So when you're, there's electricity in your body, right? So like if your heart stops, they go grab the paddles from up there. We give them to JD back there and he electrocutes you back to life, all right? We're all praying. He's using electricity, um, right? Okay, why? Because you have an electric current going through your body. Track with me for just a moment. You can look this experiment up if you would like. And what they did was they, they were curious what effect does that have on the world around us. So they brought in samples of water and they had people speak to the water, right? You just talk in front of it. And they had them do things like curse and scream and yell. And the, 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 uh, uh, the water actually, as they began to measure it, became more and more toxic. And then they would have people come in and speak kind to the water and be generous and speak blessing. And the water actually began to slightly become more and more purified. And these scientists had this epiphany, right? that what comes out of your mouth has the ability to affect water. And what is your body made up of? Like 80% water. And James says that out of the tongue comes the ability to speak life and to speak death. And so science backs up this idea that if you're a, you know, a, an angry, cursing, yelling, ang you know, vile person, right, that you're just doing nothing but destroying your own body and creating stress, and yet, if you can learn to be patient and the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to live a longer life. So I just love the way that science just kind of quietly supports the truths that we find in the pages of Scripture. That's my side tangent, but let me tell you about myself. I am chosen, I am adopted, I am redeemed, and I am His friend. The truth is made known to me. And it proves itself time and time again. Let's go back into Ephesians verse 10. As a, plan, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, right? He has a plan to unite all things. God has a plan. He is at work. This is not just random chaos. It's not just random chaos. God is up to something. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, right? What is an inheritance? It is to receive a share, right? And, and so this is fundamentally a part of adoption. Fundamentally to become grafted in means that there is an inheritance for you. That inheritance is part of what has been predestined for those that make that choice. Proverbs 13 is one of my favorite passages on inheritance, and it drives mine and my wife's decision-making a lot of times, right? So we, we say this all the time. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Let me tell you something. I am not just thinking in terms of how I manage my finances at home when it comes to what makes me comfortable, but I am thinking in terms of what helps my children and my grandchildren. I want to be known as a man of God who not only just kind of lived this life as a preacher, but was obedient and did what? I was a good man leaving something not just for my children, but for my grandchildren. Can I tell you, that's a, a muscle in your brain you need to be working out is how do you think about the next generation? How are you planning to invest in the next generation and what better portion of that generation to start with than your own family and when I think about this there are a lot of decisions that we make to make an investment in our kids 
I remember when uh, uh, The Dark Knight Rises came out, right? Anybody a Batman fan in here? Old school DC before it got all like, I don't know what's going on right now, but like, you know, Christopher Nolan, right? Like a thinker, something that was in, anyway. Uh, so it was like midnight and a group of men from the church were going to go and see the midnight release and uh, um, Isaac was, my, my oldest, was, he was much younger at the time and he was really bummed out, like, one day I'll be a man and be able to go, and he, we tucked him in and got him in bed, and at like 11.15, I came in, and he was laying there still awake, and I was like, hey, I was like, are you having a hard time sleeping? He was like, yeah, and I was like, I guess you better get dressed and come with me to the movie, and I pulled out the ticket I already had for him, right? So I made this big moment out of it, right, okay? Made this big moment, and he jumped up and was so excited. We went and watched the movie, and we came, and we parked in the driveway when we got home, and I was like, before you get out, I, I want you to know something. I did this tonight. I planned this because I love you. Well, I love you too, Dad. And I said, now here's the thing I'm giving you. This is what I'm challenging you with. One day you're going to be a daddy. By the grace of God, if God has any favor on your life, you're going to be a dad. I'm going to tell you, for those, this generation that's like, I don't want kids. Listen, I'm not going to sit and debate with you, but I'm going to tell you that if God will bless you with one, you will, right? It is amazing. And I said, by the grace of God, you'll be a dad one day. And the thing I ask is that you do this with your children. Right? What am I doing? Proverbs 13, a good man leaves an inheritance. Inheritance is more than money. An inheritance is a way of life. And I hope that he'll make the same recommendations to his kids and that it will pass from generation to generation. And some of the garbage that my family has walked through will be broken off and we will be a better clan of Simpsons, right? You can write about us in your next Lord of the Rings. Back to Ephesians chapter 11, right? Uses this word predestined again, right? What is it talking about, right? It's a talking about the predestination of this inheritance. God foreknew it. He knew that if you would choose him, he has something for you. So what does that say about me? That I am chosen, I am adopted, I am redeemed, I am his friend, and I have an inheritance. I'm not a poor person. God's got something for me. He's got a plan for me. We're wrapping up here, verse 12, so that, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory, right? So when we hope in Christ, it glorifies him. I, I want to tell you that to somebody that has not made the jump into actually being a believer, it can look like madness to them. But that madness is glorifying only one thing, and it's God. And if they want to continue to reject God, it doesn't change the fact that God's the thing being glorified. But I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a phone call after midnight from a couple whose marriage is falling apart, and they say, well, we showed up on Easter a year ago, and you said if we ever need anything to call, and we're desperate. Why would they make that phone call? Because I'm going to tell you that the only thing that continues to be glorified in desperation is God. Everything else falls apart. Everything else begins to be, the truth is known. It's toxic. It's destructive. And you'll realize at the bottom that you need help. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I want us to take a look here as we wrap up at this word sealed. And what is he saying here? He's saying that we are marked. There's a marking that is on us. And this is a result of believing. Okay? 
I want to paint a little bit of perspective here because this idea is something that is very twisted by the enemy. So, and this is a spiritual marking, right? So in the story, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Elisha comes out and his servants with him and the enemy's gathered around and the servant's like freaking out, like we're about to die. And Elisha's like, dude, it's, it's no big deal. And no, no, we're going to die. Look at the enemy. And, and Elisha prays this really just basic prayer and says, hey, Open the eyes of his heart that he will see that those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. And the scripture says that the, that the servant was able to see chariots of fire surrounding the enemy that had come, right? The battle belongs to the Lord, right? And we sing about this in worship because we believe this. Like we're declaring that, that God, if, it, if I'm having to go through the fire, the good news is I know you're there, right? If I'm going through difficulty, I know that he is there, this is a spiritual marking that is on us. Now, men in their sin have often used markings as a tool to perpetuate their demand for compliance over others. Romans branded slaves who were liars with the letters K-A-L, which in the, in the Greek was the word liar. So they would brand this to where people could see them, right? America, Europe, and Africa all branded or marked slaves as forms of punishment and or declaration of property. It became the worldwide standard to mark an individual as property by branding them, putting a mark on them. During World War II, we know that Germany marked the Jews. Those that were able to escape the, the concentration camps, right? And, and just remember, there is a difference between an internment camp and a concentration camp. They were in these camps to be killed. And I was listening to the testimony of one of these men, and he said that I was brought into this room, and they had this, this jar of dirty alcohol. And they would take a dirty rag, and they would wipe your arm, and they'd move you to the next person, and somebody had a little pen with an inkwell, and they just started tattooing you. And they had these serialized numbers. Once they hit 60,000, what he was saying was that they realized like this would go on and on and on. So they switched over to an alphabet letter at the beginning and they would only go to 20,000. So you'd have A up to 20,000, B up to 20,000. And that wasn't enough. Then they would give you your clothes and they would sew your number into your, your, the breast of your shirt and along the right, in, the, the right outside seam of your pants and you were numbered and that's how you were known. Nobody cared about any other identity. You see, the idea of the world marking us is scary and I'll be honest, this is one of the reasons why a lot of people are not interested in the vaccine passport. They're not interested in being marked because what we have seen among men is that it is used for nefarious reasons. You see, those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit are protected. This is the spiritual aspect of this. But the enemy has a great counterfeit mark that one day will be revealed. We don't know what it is. I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that it's the vaccine, and I don't think it's the vaccine passport. So if you're kind of riding that bandwagon and you were hoping I was going to get per se, I don't believe that. But I do believe that the enemy is at work with a mark. It's referred to as the mark of the beast. I don't think it'll be as plain and simple as just somebody writing three sixes on your forehead. So you walk around going, look at me, I'm really cool. Maybe. I would be an easy no for me, <laughs> right? There is a marking that's coming. We, we're uncomfortable with that. We don't want, we're not under a physical covenant. I don't want a physical marking, but I want a spiritual marking from God. So who am I? 
I am chosen, I am adopted, I am redeemed, I am his friend, I have an inheritance, and I am marked. And he finishes this thought right here in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Guarantee, what does that mean? It is a pledge or a part of the purchase. Who is the guarantee? The guarantee is Christ on us. Let's stand to our feet right here, right now. We're going to close. It is the Holy Spirit marking you and I. And I got to tell you, church, that we are constantly reminded through, 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 through teaching to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and that is good. You should do that. But Paul is bringing forward another concern, and he's very wordy in it because he's trying to help paint a good picture, and that is that you need to know who you are, and you need to be who God made you to be. I know that in the world that we live in today, it is a harsh thing, right, to tell people that they can't be whatever they want to be. That's not how God designed things. God created us, right? Psalm 139 Right, says that God knew us before we were in our mother's womb, right? He intelligently and intentionally designed us. And I can't tell you why it looks the way that it does, but I'm going to tell you right now, I have no shame on my son who is still struggling with walking. I don't look at him as an accident. God is incredible, and the joy that he brings into my home I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I can't tell you the results or why the results are what they are, but I can tell you that God does not make mistakes or accidents, and we as the church have to be able to separate what everything that the world is saying around us from who God made us to be. We have to be able to do that, right? Who is your God? What is your idol? What is the thing that's most important to you and you're most passionate about? Is it race? Is it identity? Is it politics? Right? Intersectionality do you, is the most important thing that you check as many boxes as you can. No, 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 no. None of it matters if it doesn't have Jesus right in the center of it because none of it lasts into eternity. And we have to know who we are if we're going to be able to seize the moment in the day. Nothing more, nothing less. Come on, let's bow our heads for just a moment. If you're watching online, I would encourage you to just take a moment as well, whether you're watching live right now or you're watching in the future, uh, and you're, this is a recording, if you just right now, just out of reverence, could just pause what you're doing. Because I, I believe this. I believe that when we pause, we allow some things to be released around us, that God is able to begin to do some things that, that distraction would keep us from being able to experience. So if you could right now, just, just if we just bow our heads for a moment and just be in his presence for a moment. God, we just... We ask that you would that you would speak to us.
Lord, that we would be encouraged. Uh, we would be encouraged in who we are. I'm reminded of David's prayer in Psalm 139. You know everything about me, Lord. There's, there's such an incredible transparency that exists. And so search me, point out wickedness and evil that's inside of me that, that I may find freedom and walk closer to you. Lord, that I might be known not just by you, but that I might be known in this world as belonging to you, as grafted into you. Help me. Help me to know who I am and what you have for me. And then, Lord, give me the opportunity to in the moment be light in the darkness. That you may be honored in all things. We love you and we praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Listen, if you do not know Jesus as Lord of your life and you would like to know Jesus or you just have questions, maybe you're still searching, our prayer team is in the back uh, and they would love to connect with you. If you are sick in body, the scripture says, go to the elders, allow them to pray with you. Uh, we want to be praying with you. We want to be believing that God will do what, listen to me, what only God can do sometimes. But this week, I really want to encourage you, right? I want to encourage you to, to really be giving it some thought, like, who am I? Because I'm going to tell you, you see those people who are really confident in who they are, right? And they walk into the room and you're like, man, they have a lot of confidence. We should have confidence in Christ. And God is glorified through that. So don't be ashamed of your faith. Don't be the, the Christian that's like, oh, I can't let anybody know because they'll make fun of me. I just will pray boldness over you, right? That you'll run to that. Like, I, make fun of me. I was, I was uh, telling somebody yesterday, it was like, I, like I'm just kind of at this breaking point. It's like, bro, if you, if you don't like me because I love Jesus more than anything else in the world, then don't like me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's okay. It's okay. The good news is that I've put a lot of work into my home, and so I've got a safe place to go, a wife that loves me, and kids that build Legos with me, and paint, and we shoot stuff. <laughs> we like to have fun. <laughs> So it's okay, but I'm going to stand on the word of God because Jesus is king. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday as always. Go change your world.